All right, so for those of you who haven't been here the last um, few times, we're kind of going through a number of difficult subjects. We talked about hellfire and the rich man of Lazarus. That was two weeks. And then we talked about God's wrath last week. And it's always dangerous to, I think, summarize things into a few words, so I probably shouldn't do this, but I'll go ahead and do it anyway. That um, heaven and hell, um, I've tried to sort of present a case here that they're both describing the same thing, entering into the presence of God. God is a consuming fire. And that the what changes is the person coming into the presence of God. That's dangerous to summarize. I shouldn't have done that. But anyway, there it is. And God's wrath, which I tried to describe uh, last week, is uh, as we see so many times, dozens of times, through the Old Testament, God's wrath is God handing over, giving up, forsaking people that have chosen to leave his side. So Jesus' words, dying words on the cross, very meaningful. My God, my God, why have you given me up, handed me over, forsaken me? That this is the result of God's children who choose to leave his side and their separation and consequences from that rather than uh, external imposed penalties and punishment. And today we're talking about um, God's justice because all three of these Sometimes they're just all lumped together in one big um, uh, description of how things will be in the end. So what is God's justice? And maybe just, um, maybe each of you in your mind, if you had to substitute another word for justice, uh, what word would you use? Or in your mind, if you had to just uh, kind of concisely describe it using other words, what is God's justice? And at least, you know, as, as I've heard, um, it very often described, if we had to substitute one word, it would be punishment, or in some way uh, making things right in a legal situation. And what I find um, so helpful, we have these subjects that, as, as I tried to do with the subject of fire and God's wrath, we're not just left hanging to imagine what we think it is. And I have really come to value the Old Testament for the abundant use of these words and terminologies, which we really have to wrap our mind around how it's used again and again and again and again in the Old Testament, and take that meaning to the symbols that are then used in a book like Revelation. Oftentimes the book of Revelation is interpreted without really taking seriously the references in the Old Testament um, to those subjects. So we, we have to take the Bible as a whole. And as I said with hell and with God's wrath, that the dictionary approach, um, I think we, we need to try to let the Bible interpret itself. Here I gave you kind of a standard definition, a Google search on what is God's justice. God is love, but God also punishes the sinner and hates all who do iniquity. God is not one-sided. He is not simply an infinitely loving God. He's also infinitely just. Okay, and that means he must deal with sin Okay, we'd all agree with that, but in this definition, he must punish the sinner. Okay, so what does the Bible have to say about God's justice? And I should have uh, made this more contemporary here by uh, President Obama said the same words just a few weeks ago about Benghazi. But George Bush, when he said, we will bring the terrorists to justice, or when President Obama said, we will bring the people to justice that did this terrorist Attack, you know, what we all translate that. What does that mean? We're gonna, they will be punished appropriately for what they've done. So in our modern understanding of justice, 
it is very much related to an appropriate punishment that fits the crime. Here's a very influential uh, contemporary pastor, John Piper, and I thought I would just let him speak for the subject of God's justice and see what you think. Oh, and it would help if I would plug the audio cord in here. One second. Psalm as a divinely inspired voice of David, God's anointed, suffering for the glory of God, expressing his desire for and approval of God's judgment on the unrepentant adversaries of the Lord. He's making plain that God's judgment does come. It's right that it come. It's desirable that it come. There is desire, divine judgment coming. And uh, when it comes, we will approve it. So the first thing I want us to feel is God is just. And He's wrathful. And judgment's coming. And everybody who has been resistant to the Lord's anointed and not repented and let his sufferings break them into repentance will perish. This church believes that. We're not, we're not a soft theological church. There is steel in this Bible. And though in America today we may be a soft people, we are a very mushy, soft people, the days are coming when you will want a theology with steel in it. And all the happy feelings won't be happy at all. When blood flows as high as a horse's bridle, you will think differently about justice. than when your biggest problem is an air conditioner that doesn't work. Okay, so I'm just going to let that stand as a common definition of God's justice. And I will just suggest here a few problems that I see with how this is usually um, described. Uh, one is I think um, uh, we make assumptions when we read things. Again, especially in the book of Revelation. John Piper there mentioned the wrath of the Lamb. Um, well, is that kind of a, could you have come up with a bigger oxymoron here? I mean, the lamb and wrath. And in the book of Revelation, when we get to this, um, I will try to take the case that the, the book of Revelation is contrasting. The image of God in the book of Revelation is the violently slaughtered lamb. When we get right down to the heart of the throne room scene, who's there? It's a violently slaughtered lamb. But there's another beast in Revelation, and a devouring beast who also has wrath. Okay, so we have two beasts that have wrath, and here the, the wrath of the Lamb is usually interpreted as just, uh, well, that's Jesus. But is there significance that Jesus is symbolized here as a Lamb? In other words, is there meaning more than just identification of the person who's doing it? Does this tell us something about the wrath that's involved? Again, there's another beast that has wrath, and I would say the wrath of the two beasts is very different. So I think sometimes we make assumptions. Sigby Tonstead, who I'm very sad, moved back to Norway last month, but he wrote a great uh, detailed paper on that passage in Revelation, Revelation, blood as high as the horse's bridle. Well, here, John Piper took that very literally. I think we can use the Old Testament to understand what is the meaning. 
of that. What does it actually mean? Um, the other is, um, I think, uh, a failure to take the Bible as a whole. That we not just read something about wrath or fire and not incorporate everything else that the Bible has to say about it. So we talked about how important it is that we understand what is Gehenna, Hinnom Valley, and fire as used all through the Bible. Now let's put together our picture of hell. Um, the dozens of times where God's wrath in the Old Testament is described as God handing over forsaking people who've rebelled and have left him. Okay, we need to take that meaning and import that into every time it's used, again, for example, in the book of Revelation. And we're going to try to do the same thing today with um, God's justice. And I think most important, and this has been the, if I just had to point to one thing that got me excited about God in the first place and is still kind of been the gold standard that I think should be used as we interpret anything, any belief, is to hold Jesus as the defining image of God's character. If we're developing a list of doctrines or a model where the description of God is diverging from what Jesus revealed about God, um, then that, that is problematic. We want everything that we believe about God to be in harmony with what Jesus revealed about God. Jesus is not just a window, a tiny aspect into God's character. He's, the, he's it. When we think about who God is, it's Jesus. And if, what's the defining image of Jesus? This is it. Dying on Calvary, forgiving sinners, forgiving his enemies. Okay, and I find it just amazing that the cross can be used to scare people of God. I mean, if, there are two ways of looking at the cross, which we'll talk about in January. But uh, one is we see the one on the cross as fully God. And when you see the one on the cross as fully God forgiving his enemies, that can't help but affect your picture of who God is. If we see the one on the cross not really fully God, the real God is punishing his son for sin, then it is possible to view this and not to say, wow, look at what God is like, but instead to, to view the cross and to see, look what God will do to me if I don't say I'm sorry before I die. These are two very different ways of looking at it. Okay, um, this is, um, I'm just giving illustrations here. There's an individual who um, has written a whole book that is basically uh, kind of going against most of the things that, that we've been talking about, or taking a different position, I should say. So I go to this individual's website. Again, I mean, be critical. Uh, this is actually, I've met this person. He's a nice uh, man. We've had some good conversations. But here's the website, and there you can see Revelation 19.11. He's been out to Loma Linda and talked a few times. Um, but he reads Revelation 19, and that's his image of Jesus coming. Okay, now, are there any problems with that? Where's the sword in Revelation 19? Coming out of his mouth. Okay, but yet this is, again, we read these are very powerful symbols in Revelation, and this is often how we paint it in our mind. Let's just read Revelation 19. And then I saw heaven open. And there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True. It is with integrity that he judges and fights his battles. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and he wore many crowns on his head. Again, is that how it would really be when Jesus comes in the clouds, lots of crowns on his head? Uh, these, are, these are all important uh, symbolic meanings. Very important. He has had a name written on him, but no one except himself knows what it is. Okay, that's... Again, there's a very important meaning to that. The robe he wore was covered with blood. Now, whose blood is on Jesus' robe? Well, 
again, maybe let's wait till we get to Revelation, but I will just agree with Sigvitonsted's point here. This is his own blood. Okay? And, but yet, we'll read that and we'll think it's the blood of his enemies that is, is on his robe. His name is the word of God. The armies of heaven followed him, riding on white horses. I've never actually seen a picture of the second coming with all of heaven coming on horses, but here it is. Dressed in clean white linen. And notice, out of his mouth came a sharp sword. Okay, the sword comes out of his mouth. That has a meaning. What is the sword? In which he will defeat the nations. He will rule over them with a rod of iron. He will trample out the wine and the winepress of the furious anger of the Almighty God. Now again, if we read this and completely detach every connection with God's wrath and the rest of the Bible, then yes, you're going to come up with a, a certain picture of what will happen in the end. If we attach God's wrath here with everything else in the whole Bible, then I think we come to a different meaning of these passages. So it has to do very often with making assumptions and not trying to read the Bible as a whole on subjects like this. So here's our verse for today. What is God's justice? Matthew 12. And this is a quote from Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. Okay, how do you proclaim justice? He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. Now again, our, our traditional understanding of justice, if it's mainly equated with punishment or in a legal way punishing to make things right for sin, um, that's a little bit difficult to do with this passage. Jesus comes full of the Holy Spirit. He will proclaim, proclaim justice, but notice how he does it. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out until he leads justice to victory. Okay, how do we incorporate the meaning here of justice into this whole description of what Jesus did? And just one other passage in Matthew 23, where Jesus said, How terrible for you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give to God one-tenth of even the seasoning herbs such as mint, dill, but you neglect to obey the really important teachings of the law, such as, and he lists three, justice, mercy, and honesty. These you should practice without neglecting the others. Okay, so um, just like hellfire, just like wrath, um, these weighted terms are redundantly defined for us in the Old Testament. So we need to go back and I would just encourage all of you to be active readers. I mean, I know you, you are reading medical stuff, but um, just keep chipping away at the Bible and have these questions in mind as you read through. Every time you see a description of wrath or justice, circle it, what's the meaning here? Okay, to, to build a model of, of the reality. So I'm gonna list a few verses, but by no means is this exhaustive, but I see this as the dominant theme in the Old Testament about what God's justice really is. Okay, here's one we read last year in the Bible study, Zechariah 7. Then the Lord spoke his word to Zechariah. He said, this is what the Lord of armies says. Administer real justice. Now he's going to go on and define what it is. What is real justice? And be compassionate and kind to each other. Don't oppress widows, orphans, foreigners, and poor people. And don't even think of doing evil to each other. Is this the meaning that in 21st 
century America we have when we think of justice, God's justice. Administer real justice. Be compassionate and kind to each other. Don't oppress widows, orphans, foreigners, poor people. Don't even think of doing evil to each other. That's not our, our Western way of describing justice. Okay, but this is redundant. Just rely on one verse. I'll just read a few others. Psalm 82. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the needy. Obviously, he's not saying punish the afflicted and the needy. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Defend the poor and fatherless. Okay, uh, justice, as it's defined in the Bible, is um, compassionately making things right. And it especially has to do with making things right for those who are being abused and mistreated. There's another one in Isaiah. Wash yourselves clean. Stop all this evil I see you're doing. Yes, stop doing evil and learn to do right. See that justice is done. Again, what is, what is justice? Help those who are oppressed. Give orphans their rights and defend widows. Okay, this is God's justice. This is very much, as I read it, the dominant theme of what God's justice is. You help the oppressed of society. You make things right in that way. Jeremiah 21. This is what the Lord says to the dynasty of David. Give justice each morning to the people you judge. Okay, and then it's described again, same way. Help those who have been robbed. Rescue them from their oppressors. Okay, justice has to do with protecting people from being abused, often. Okay, it's blocking what the abusers are doing to those who are oppressed. And that's how David is encouraged to give justice. Isaiah 30, the Lord is waiting to be kind to you. He rises to have compassion on you. And the Lord is a God of justice. This is what it means. God is a God of justice. He's waiting to be kind. He rises to have compassion on you. Ezekiel 45, for this is what the sovereign Lord says. Enough, you princes of Israel. Stop your violence and oppression and do what is just and right. Quit robbing and cheating my people out of their land. Stop expelling them from their homes. So justice doesn't have to do with meeting out violence. It's stopping violence. It's preventing violence. And in Micah 6, this one you're all familiar with, the Lord has told us what is good. What he requires of us is this, to do what is just, to show constant love, and to live in humble fellowship with our God. So we're not contrasting here. These, are, these all are in harmony. To do what is just is to show constant love, and none of that is possible unless we're living in humble fellowship with God. So again, it helps to, to round out a meaning of what this is. So um, if you're looking this up and you're wanting to, to look at the Hebrew, uh, the two words translated as either justice or righteousness are tzedakah and mishpat. Okay? And oftentimes the two are used together, as they are in Jeremiah 22. Act with justice and righteousness, and deliver from the hand of the oppressor anyone who has been robbed. Same thing, deliver from the oppressor. And, and do no wrong or violence to the alien, the orphan, the widow. How often do the orphan, the widow, the helpless come up in the context of God's justice? So do no wrong to those people or shed innocent blood in this place. That's what God's justice looks like. Okay, so um, there are some Jewish charities um, that are named after this word that is translated as justice. Here's from one of the 
um, charities. I should have included the link to the website here, but their definition of justice is equated with charity. The just of tzedakah is charity. The giving of your time or money to help someone else without expecting something in return. It is one of the cornerstones of the Jewish religion. And again, but we, we hear justice in the 21st century and don't have quite that same meaning as they did in the Old Testament. Um, this is from a really good book uh, called From Charity to Social Justice. And it's kind of a, an interpretation of justice here in the Old Testament. Jewish kings were commanded to practice mishpat and tzedakah. The literal translation of this term is justice and righteousness or justice and charity. Classical as well as modern commentaries agree that this command does not refer to courtroom justice and charity, but to social justice. The major wrongdoing to which the prophets objected was not the perversion of the judicial process, but oppression and exploitation of the poor by the political elite and the wealthy classes. One modern political scientist wrote, the execution of righteousness and justice in the royal domain refers primarily to acts on behalf of the poor and less fortunate classes of the people. This policy was implemented primarily by means of social legislation rather than by court judgment. The idea or ideal of social justice has a long history in Judaism. So again, when we read these passages about God's justice, this is the kind of, uh, I think, holistic view that the Bible would take on this. So some of you might know Scott Nelson, who is an orthopedic surgeon that graduated here a number of years ago. And um, he is out in Haiti, or is there much of the time anyway, and uh, taking care of people after the earthquake. And I, if you want to just put a face, here's an image. What does God's justice look like? Uh, that's, that's an image I would like to, to put up there. The people who have nothing, no health care, no ability to care for themselves, going out and making right those kinds of situations. That's what God does in his justice. It has to do with that, and we associate it with that, and not so much of a, a legal way of making things right, or a punishment way of making things right. We're familiar with this term of justice, right? You've all justified a Word document. Okay, you didn't punish your document when you did that. You set things right. Okay, justice is a setting things right. Now, if you do an exhaustive search on justice um, in the Old Testament, you will occasionally find times where it is associated with punishment. Um, the big point I would like to make is that, that I do not see retributive punishment at all described in the Bible. In fact, uh, I'll just give you one example. Let's say you have a... Uh, I have two boys that are 10 and 12, and they're really getting into the computer. Okay, we, we bought them both uh, laptops recently, which might have been a mistake, but I mean, we have to, to be very careful about the time and what they're watching and all of that, of course. But let's say you have a child that abuses um, the internet. Now, you might punish your child for that, but is it retributive? Okay, no, it's discipline. The punishment is for the sake of the child's good. It's not retributive. It's not for the purpose of inflicting painful punishment. So here's just one uh, sample verse of that concept in Jeremiah 30. I will discipline you, but with justice. I cannot let you go unpunished. But the punishing here is for the sake of the good of the individual. It's just not so that they punish an appropriate amount of time based on something they did wrong. It's for their good. Okay, you punish someone for their good, that's discipline, that's not a retributive process. So I would say, what is God's justice? Let's just first say what it is not. 
it is not a quid pro quo payback justice. In other words, an eye for an eye kind of a justice. It is not a retributive justice or a legal justice or a justice that involves an imposed painful penalty. So those verses we just read about Jesus, he will not break a, a reed or you know, snuff out a smoldering candle. Uh, he will bring justice. Now, what we've said about the Old Testament on justice, can we now reread that passage and understand how the life of Jesus was the very embodiment of God's justice? Okay, who were the, who were the abusers in Jesus' day? It was the religious leaders, the Pharisees, okay, who had no compassion if you were poor, if you were sick. Um, you know, you were nothing. You were dirt. Those people were abused. Okay, so Jesus, when he lives out God's justice, what does he do? He defends the poor and the helpless. And he's continually um, talking to the Pharisees about what they're doing. So Jesus' act of healing the sick, which did not fit their model. If you're sick, you're cursed by God. Just the very act that he spent so much time he healing people like lepers. Um, you know, it just went totally countercultural. But that is an act of God's justice. The blind, the deaf. Okay, these people are cursed by God. So Jesus taking such an interest in them and hanging out with them, eating with sinners and tax collectors. Okay, when you help the oppressed, that is an action of God's justice, feeding the 5,000. And just his treatment of women, I find uh, amazing. Um, you know, women were so mistreated during Jesus' time. The woman caught in adultery. The abusers there, yes, she did something wrong, but the abusers were the religious people who came, and if they were really following Leviticus, they should have brought the man as well. Okay, and so Jesus blocked that, and in that way uh, lived out God's justice, talking with a Canaanite woman, um, talking with heathen women in church. I mean, all of this, these people were, uh, women were really looked down on. So Jesus' treatment of women was, again, the very embodiment of God's justice. And when Jesus would say things like, blessed are the meek, Hey, who are the meek? Again, they're looked down on by anyone who knows anything about the Bible. And Jesus comes along and says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Or blessed are the poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. Okay, this kind of an interest for these types of people is God's justice. Now, um, this is probably one of the more difficult, complex passages um, in the writings of Paul, but it's really an important one. And uh, so I'll just read it because in the Greek, there's one word that can either be translated as justice or righteousness. So again, how we understand that very much applies to reading a passage like this in Romans. So here's Romans 3:25 and 26 in the NIV. That God presented him, Jesus, as the sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So, um, you know, as we read this, again, if the justice is a punishment setting things right, we could read this passage and come away with that um, conclusion. You can also translate it fairly, righteousness. And let's just see if we have maybe a different meaning if we read it this way. God offered him so that by his blood he should become the means by which people's sins are forgiven through their faith in him. 
God did this in order to demonstrate that he is righteous. In the past, he was patient and overlooked people's sins. But in the present time, he deals with their sins in order to demonstrate his righteousness. In this way, God shows that he himself is righteous and that he puts right everyone who believes or trusts in Jesus. I think we can read it in either translation and come away with the same meaning. But again, what, it, what does it mean? If we take it justice, what does it mean if we translate it as uh, righteous? Um, perhaps we'll come back to this in January when we talk about why did Jesus have to die and the meaning of Jesus' death. But clearly, I think we'd have to say this is the defining image of who God is. This, we want to just take away one little glimpse of world history and say, we're going to paint one image of God, it would be the cross. And isn't it at the cross that we see that God is righteous? Isn't this where he demonstrated his righteousness? And could we use another word instead of righteous? His trustworthiness. Uh, could we even put his character in there? And I think uh, here in this passage, in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Uh, well, I would want to tie that in with what we said last week. Okay, what did we say happened at the cross? Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Okay, at the cross, we really do see the consequence, the inherent intrinsic consequence of sin and separation from God. We see that fully unveiled at the cross. And is that involved in the demonstration of God's righteousness and goodness? Well, there's a, a very good book called Stricken by God that I would encourage um, those, those of you who are interested in this to read. And there's one chapter in there. It's a multi-authored book by Sharon Baker. And she describes this concept of justice that I've been trying to paint for you. So she said, well, retributive justice, that's usually how God's justice is defined. While retributive justice seeks to fit the punishment to the crime, attempting to control wrongdoing through punishment, restorative justice forgives the crime and seeks to redeem wrong, wrongdoing through a repairing of the relationship. At the cross, we see God turning away the opportunity to exact retributive justice and the demand for retribution, and instead, God would choose to forgive. At the cross, we come face to face with the shameful depravity of our own sin by coming face to face with the one who has the right and the power to punish, but who instead loves and forgives. In the face of human hatred and hardness of heart, God still managed to redeem. I think that's a nice uh, description of not retributive, but a, a restorative justice. Okay, and then finally, just in conclusion, and maybe this gets back to the John Piper little clip that I paid, uh, played a few minutes ago. The objections to this whole picture that we've been talking about of God's wrath, hellfire, and justice is that it makes God out to be a softy, and that would be an objection, that wouldn't be my contention, of course, and that it makes light of sin. Okay, so we just, just throw it out there and say, okay, this is what people that would not agree with this view uh, would describe. Well, again, let's use our patient-physician uh, relationship as an analogy. Okay, so we have sin, and we have God's wrath and justice and hellfire, all viewed as a retributive punishment that is externally imposed. And so some would say that unless we really highlight this, God's wrath and justice and punishment, then we diminish the significance of sin. And we make God too soft. And maybe people, you know, they need to be, have a certain view of God to, to change their mind. Well, let's use the patient-physician analogy. So let's 
equate sin here with smoking. Okay, I'm not equating sin with smoking, but let's just for the sake of argument, uh, let's say that you have a patient that smokes two, three packs a day. Okay, and how does a physician, what do you do with a patient who smokes? Well, let's say that physicians here for wrongdoing, that we have physicians' wrath and justice viewed as retributive punishment that is externally imposed. So that let's just say the common view held about smoking was that what's really bad about smoking is that it upsets physicians and it causes physicians to cause lung cancer and emphysema and all kinds of things because they really don't like it when their patients smoke. Now, is this view, which is, is it soft on smoking? I would say yes. It diminishes, the only thing that's bad about smoking is that physicians don't like it. Okay, and so I would say as a parallel that if we diminish sin as, well, sin really isn't that bad, it's just that God doesn't like it, God will punish, it upsets God, that this actually is a view that is soft on sin. I would say a view that is much harder on sin is that puts the weight and the force and the impact and the punishment for sin as inherent to the quality of sin, which is really a rebellious, distrustful attitude towards God, which leads to all kinds of sinful behaviors. If we say that that intrinsically leads to horrible consequences, which it does, and if that intrinsically leads to horrible punishment, which it does, that highlights it, it puts a premium on the punishment for sin, and I don't think we need to make God soft in that uh, scenario any more than we would need to say that a physician who wouldn't punish a patient for smoking is soft on smoking. Okay, that wouldn't make sense. The danger is that, you know, we want patients who smoke to come see their physician. How are they going to stop smoking? Well, they need medical help. They need to sit down with someone who can help them. If we scare patients about doctors, okay, this is what a doctor will do to you if he finds out you're smoking, then we may find very few smokers that actually end up showing up at their physician's office. Okay, if we paint physicians, or in this case God, as the only one who can really help and heal, then I think we find people much more likely to want to turn to God. And I think there are dangers in turning to God from fear. Okay, so again, if this view is highlighted, what's really bad about sin is external punishment from God, well, that does lead a lot of people to turn to God. Just like if um, you knew that in the end, your smoking would eventually lead a physician to find you someday and really get you for it, you might show up at your physician's office, but it would be out of fear. And I think there are, there are a couple negative consequences, big time, in coming to God from fear, to avoid punishment. Uh, one is we see that just embodied in the life of the Pharisees. They had a vengeful, arbitrary, punishing picture of God, and what did they do? They obeyed. Now, they hated God when he came, but boy, did they keep the rules. Okay, so fear of God can lead us to obey God, but yet we're really not his friends. We don't have a relationship with him. We can do all kinds of external things, but we're doing it out of fear. The other form of legalism, which I like, is uh, an obsession with one's legal standing before God. Am I legally right? Am I covered? Well, that is, that is a form of legalism. Okay, and I think what is, what is really the picture that the Bible is trying to paint is more of a relationship model than a legal model. Okay, we need to be in relationship with God, not in good legal standing with God. Just like if you are sick, you have a medical problem, 
you need to be in a trusting relationship with your physician who can help and heal. And God is infinitely better able to heal us of the sin problem than a doctor is able to heal from lung cancer. Okay, so we need, it's very important how we describe God, how God is involved in the sin process. And I think a certain view can keep people away from God. Another view can actually wake people up and realize that God is a safe person to come to. Okay, let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for on subjects like this that, um, uh, once again, it's uh, such a, a big picture that is described in the Bible. Help each person here to search this out for themselves, to discover what is really true. And most of all, may we come to see that you are uh, supremely good and trustworthy and that we can come to you with our worst problems and that your desire is to help and to heal us. Amen.